Amen, church. Would you remain standing as we read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So it is now Tuesday of Holy Week. Two days have passed since Jesus made his unmistakable announcement. By riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, he made very clear that he was the promised son of David, the long-awaited king of Israel. Now we spent our last two Lord's Days together studying everything that came after that point. The following day, as Jesus would come back into Jerusalem, heading straight into the temple, the very heart of Israel, the very heart of their relationship with God. And what he found there was everything except that which belonged. The temple was a holy place. It was a place where God had invited his people to come and meet with and worship him. It was to be a place of sacrifice, a place of prayer. But instead, what Jesus found there was an open-air market, a loud and noisy bazaar, a place where the powerful religious leaders, they got rich on the backs of the lowly worshiper. So Jesus cleans the whole place out. The court of Gentiles, that outer court, he chases from that place the money changers, those that are selling pigeons. He stops all traffic, all those that would seek to trample this court of Gentiles as they walk through the complex carrying their goods. He shut the whole thing down. And he cries out to them, is it not written, my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, you have made it into a den of robbers. As we talked last week, this was, this was much more than just a cleansing. This is a sign of things to come. This was not a reformation. This was not a restoration. Jesus was making clear to Israel that her heartless, her faithless, her fruitless religion was detestable to God. God does not delight in their sacrifices. He is not pleased with their burnt offerings when they're not accompanied by a heart of faith and love and obedience. That which was intended to be a pleasing aroma before God, it had become nothing more than a detestable stench in his nostrils. This temple temple would not stand for long. 40 years from this point, it would be destroyed. Not one single stone left standing upon another. Then after Jesus has cleansed the temple, Matthew tells us that 
A number of people were brought in before him, lame folks, blind folks, crippled folks, and that Jesus healed them all. Dear friends, you must see this, that Jesus rejected. He cast out from his father's house the haughty, the prideful, those that believed they could come thoughtlessly into the house of God with no repercussions whatsoever. They were nothing but a big, fruitless, leafy tree. In the end, they would wither up and be cast into the fires of hell. But for those that came lowly, humble, meek, desperate for the hand of God, they would enter into the house of God, they would find there the son of God, and they would find a smile upon his face. They would walk out of that place whole because they had met Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God. Then after he was done, Jesus turned his back, exited the temple, out to the east of Jerusalem, up over the Mount of Olives, and back to the town of Bethany where he'd spend the night with some dear friends. So I ask you to go ahead and stand back to your feet, please. We return to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. We begin reading here in verse 20. This is the word of God. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you, anyone has, you have anyone... And when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, it is our desire to come into this place with one singular purpose. That is to glorify your name in your presence. Father, we pray that you be glorified in our thoughts and in our words and all the actions to come. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's your son's precious name we pray, amen. So again, this is Tuesday. It's the 11th day of Nisan, the year 30 AD. It's gonna be a very long day, a day filled with much great teaching. As a matter of fact, what you'll find is that Mark's gospel will take from this point all the way through the end of the 13th chapter to unveil for us what happened in this 18-hour period, something like that. So it begins like this in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So it's morning time again. Now Matthew tells us that the tree immediately began to wither as soon as Jesus cursed it. But apparently they hadn't noticed it on that day. Was it because it was already nighttime? The sun had already set when they passed back by on the way to Bethany? Was it because maybe they took a slightly different route up over the Mount of Olives? Perhaps was it they were so caught up in all the excitement of what they had just seen in the temple. But whatever the case, it wasn't until the morning time. They're probably passing down this very same path. They look up along the way and they see that tree. That fig tree that just 24 hours earlier had been filled with leaves. A big, robust tree with all the signs of life. And now it was withered. Withered all the way to its roots. You know, we had that big freeze a couple of months ago. And what I was told was you can cut off your, some of your plants. Those that are frozen. Had some big, beautiful bottle brush. They're not so big and beautiful anymore. But I was told that if you can cut them off all the way at the roots, that perhaps something will sprout back. They'll come back to life. But this only works if the roots have not been destroyed. This tree was withered to its roots. The very source of its life. Its heart, if I can say this. It was completely dead, cold, withered, no signs of life whatsoever. Verse 21. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed, it is withered. 
So Peter is the leader of the apostles. He remembers what's happened the day before. You remember when we read through that text, we concluded by saying that as Jesus cursed the tree, the disciples heard it. They were standing by and they were listening. And so Peter remembers, as he sees this withered tree, he remembers that this was the tree that Jesus had approached just 24 hours earlier. The morning before, Jesus was hungry. He looked up and he saw this tree and leaf. He went up to it expecting to find some early season figs. They wouldn't be fully ripe, but they would be edible. And yet when he arrived there, all he found was leaves. There was no figs whatsoever, no fruit. And so he cursed the tree. May no fruit ever come from you ever again. This, just like the cleansing of the temple, this was an acted parable. This is a sign to apostate Israel that my father rejects you. Your worship is not pleasing to him. And soon enough, a curse, the destruction will come as this town is surrounded by the Babylonians as they capture this city and they destroy this temple. Jesus was acting this out before their eyes in the cursing of this fig tree and now it withered up. This truly was shocking to his apostles. These men that had been, been with him and seen so many miracles, even raising of dead men, from, uh, men to life from dead. We know that Jesus was a healer and Jesus was a helper and Jesus was one that created things and yet here we see him with these destructive miracles. It's a true shock to their system. So Matthew tells us in his account, Matthew 21, Matthew tells us that the disciples actually asked Jesus a question. They said, Jesus, how did this fig tree wither at once? Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. That's it, isn't it? Have faith in God. That's everything. That's the whole of the Bible, whole purpose for the universe, have faith in God. We pray this over our little children as we bring them forward for dedication. Father God, would you bring this child to faith in you? We pray this in the darkness of night as our doubts seek in. We, they, they creep in on us in the darkness of night. We cry out, Father God, I wish to have faith in you. We pray that we would endure in this life, that we would finish this race well, that we would come to the end of this life continuing to have faith in God. Dear friends, faith in God, this is everything. We're called to be a people of faith, and yet you must know that we don't have a monopoly on the word faith. We live in a world that loves to celebrate faith. You just gotta believe. You just gotta hold on to the faith. Instagram posts and bumper stickers and t-shirts, all of them telling you, you just gotta have faith. But then what? They don't really ever tell us that, do they? And then when you press them, what you find out pretty quickly is they don't really know either. Is it faith in faith? Is there something valuable, something to be cherished, some power just in the act of faith? Is it faith in humanity? Perhaps is it faith in ourselves, and that's it. Have faith in yourself. See, we live in a world that's convinced that the ultimate problem, the only thing holding us back is we don't have enough love for ourselves and we don't believe enough in ourselves. If we can just find our true identity, if we can just unleash our true power, if we can just find who it is that we've always been all along, and then, man, there's nothing that's gonna stop us. Our potential is really gonna come out, and the world better watch out then. There's a mighty something within me, and I've just got to realize it. Just got to have faith in myself. This kind of nonsense, it trickles into the church. We find people abusing passages of Scripture like Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, what you got to do is, through Jesus Christ, you got to find a way to have faith in yourself. Realize your own potential, your own abilities. Just tack the name of Jesus Christ on to the end of your life, and then you can accomplish all things because you're great, don't you know? Any of you that have been around for longer than a cup of coffee, you know how badly I want to launch into just a destructive attack on that kind of thinking. That's the kind of nonsense that leads men straight to the pit of hell. And dear friends, this should come as no surprise because if faith in God is the key, 
If faith in God is the core, if faith in the God is that truth that runs all throughout the scripture, should it be any surprise that that's the thing that Satan attacks the most? You see, he doesn't have to attack them both. He either just has to get you to misunderstand what faith is or to place true faith in the wrong thing. Either way, he wins. So we've got to ask. Have faith in God. What does this mean? Go out on the street and you ask people, do you have faith in God? And most of them, even in this day, most of them are going to say yes. Now what they mean by that, even many of those that claim the name of Jesus Christ, what they mean by that is, I have faith that there is something out there called God. They identify it by some number of names, the dragon in the sky, Buddha, Allah, perhaps God, or maybe even Yahweh. But they identify there is something out there called God, some being that's greater and bigger and beyond, probably the God that has created everything. They have some belief that God exists. And dear friends, this is a good place to start. You must believe that God exists. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrew eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. You've got to start there and believing that there is a God. But I would argue with you that Many people that sit in church pews just like these this morning, they don't go much beyond that. They have a belief that there is a God. They're not an atheist, and so they show up in church on a Sunday morning. And of course, at this point, most preachers, they point them to James 2.19 that says that even the demons believe and yet they shudder. But Christian, I would tell you that I believe there are many Christians, many who call themselves Christians, that they don't even believe like the demons believe. The demons know God. They hate him. They do not worship or seek to please him. But they have a very orthodox view of who God is. And yet there are many well-dressed, churchy people sitting in places just like this, calling themselves by the name of Christ, and they have no clue who God is because they never took their time to study the Bible. They never took any time to study who God has actually revealed himself to be in his holy scriptures. And we say things like, you know what, I like to go out into the woods. That's where I experience God the most. That's where I see him. I see him in his creation. And dear friends, this is true and this is good. Paul talks about this in Romans 1, that God has, in fact, revealed himself in his creation, in the stars, in the elephants, in the mountains. He's revealed himself in our heart, in our very conscience that shows us right from wrong. Dear friends, this is just enough to leave you damned and without an excuse. This is just enough to leave you guilty before the God of the universe. You've got to understand this, that if your thoughts about who God is, if your affections towards this God, if they're not informed by the scriptures in which God reveals himself, you are walking on very, very thin ice. Listen to the words of Proverbs 19.2. This would be a good verse for you to memorize. It says that desire without knowledge is not good. Some of your translations may have the word zeal. Zeal, passion, desire, without knowledge, it is not good. If your zeal for God is not driven by a knowledge of who this God is, as revealed in his word, it's not a good thing. It's not a thing to be celebrated. It's not a thing that's going to lead to blessing and to life. Your zeal must be driven by knowledge. And that knowledge is found in the word of God. It's only there that you're going to find the God that is God. The only God that can save you. The only God that is worthy of your faith. The God that long ago and many times and in many ways revealed himself through his prophets. But in these last days has revealed himself in his son. It's only by the working of the Holy Spirit, working in conjecture and and, and combination with his word that you can come to see him. You could see the God of the universe in his word and that there you can see the word, his son, Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. There is no God that is not the father of Jesus Christ. I and the father am one. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
There is no God that is not the God that has sent forth his son Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. There is no God that has not sent forth his spirit to call men to life. There is no God who is not the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All throughout his letters, you'll hear the Apostle Paul say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We identify God because we have seen his son. We have seen his son in the Holy Scriptures by the working of his spirit coming within us and calling us to life. We don't see him physically in this room, and yet with eyes of faith, with ears of faith, with a heart that believes, with these spiritual gifts that God has given us in this new birth, we're able to see his son, and we're able to rightly know and have faith in God. There's only one God that is worthy of our faith. Have faith in God. Pistis is a word. And again, this is much more than just head knowledge. This is much more than just a belief that God exists. You must believe that God exists. And you must believe the right things about this God who exists. And yet this isn't just the, an, some assent to some certain set of facts about who God is or even who his son is. That's the traditional Southern Baptist evangelistic episode, isn't it? I stand up in this place and I tell you some facts about Jesus, some facts about God. And then I invite you to come down to the front. And you come down here and I hold your hands and I say, do you believe the things that I said to be true? Do you believe the words that I said about God to be true? And if you will nod your head and say yes, then I declare you saved for all times. The difference is more than this. It's much more than just nodding your head. It's much more than just intellectually believing some things that the Bible says about God. It goes beyond this, the faith that Jesus has called us to. Of course it begins in the head. It must begin in the head. Paul talks about this in Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in one they have not been told about? How will they be told if somebody doesn't preach? How will they preach if they are not sent? Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. It must begin in our hearts, but it must take root in our heads, but it must take root in our hearts. It must consume the whole of man. In that very same chapter of Romans, he says, you must believe in your heart. This is a deep conviction, more than just head knowledge, more than just an intellectual understanding, more than just the ability to recite some facts. This is a thing which enraptures your heart and draws it towards God, takes hold of you in a way that nothing else ever has. Many times we don't know that it's happening. We think about Jesus, and he uses the the picture of a man sowing seeds. We don't know what's happening to those seeds after they go down deep into the soil. We don't know it until something happens. C.S. Lewis tells a story about how he got into a car one day and he didn't believe in God. As far as he was concerned, God did not exist. He gets in the car and he's riding along the way and he's not having a religious conversation. He's not having spiritual thoughts. He's not talking about God whatsoever. He gets in the car, he does not believe in God. He gets to his place, he gets out of the car and God is real. Somehow he knows. He didn't set out to find God. He didn't set out to wrestle with God. He didn't set out to find faith. He got in the car. There was no God. He gets out of the car. God is everything, and he is everywhere. Dear friends, this is the way of faith. It's not always in an instance like this. For many of us, it feels like wrestling over years, and yet somewhere along the way, we come to realize, I have faith in God. And as you look backwards, you realize, and it didn't come from me. I didn't seek out to find God. God wasn't playing hide and seek with me. He came to me. He revealed himself to me. He gave me the eyes that I could see him. This is the way of faith. This is the way that it happens. You look up and it's more than just some things that you believe. There's so many of us that for all of our lives, all of us little church kids, was there ever a day that you didn't believe that God was real? Of course you didn't. Was there ever a day that you didn't know that Jesus was his son and died on the cross? You knew this. From your mother's womb, you were being told these things. You always knew them up here, but you had no idea how they would affect your day-to-day life. You had no interest in following after or doing anything in response to this. 
And yet many churches have stood over children just like this and said, you therefore are saved because you can recite the facts. And yet there's a work that only God can do as he calls you to life, and it affects the whole of man. Your mind renewed. You begin to have the thoughts of Christ. Your thoughts are drawn towards Christ, a heart that's just enraptured with him, no longer drawn to selfishness and the filth of this world, but your affections drawn towards God. And then, yes, your will, even your desires, they change. You begin to want the things that glorify God. You begin to want the things that make you look like Christ. You begin to want the things that draw other people into him. Every bit of who you are, your entire soul, this is what faith in God looks like. This is much more than head games. This is much more than learning some knowledge. Yes, it starts there, but it consumes every bit of who you are. And will never let loose. Dear friends, there are going to be times when you lack assurance. There are going to be times when you struggle with sin. There are going to be times when you love sin in your darkest hours. But dear friends, there will never be a time when you do not, not know that God is there. There will never be a time when you doubt that his son, Jesus Christ, is the only way to him. This is the root of faith that takes hold of your heart and will not let go. This is that faith which endures to the end. This is the faith that he's calling us to. But even further than this, it begins in your head and it takes hold of your heart and the whole of you is drawn towards God. And then there's activity that comes as a result of that. There's fruit. There's evidence. There's signs. You can't help but move towards this thing that you now delight in, this thing that you have now placed your faith in. That's the question. You believe that God is good. Great. You believe that he is real. Excellent. You know that his son is Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins. Wonderful. How do you know you've placed your trust in him? I talk often about this platform. I use this as an analogy for this, and there is no perfect analogy. I don't even know that there's a good analogy for what it truly means to have saving faith in God. And yet, I ask you, how do I know that I believe? How do, I, how do you know that I trust that this platform can hold my weight? Because I'm standing here. I don't know when I made that decision. Some point I did. At some point I walked into this place, I saw it and thought, that looks like the kind of thing that can hold me. How would I know if I'm not placing my trust in it, if I refuse to stand up on it? It doesn't matter what I say when I'm standing back there in that pew. I believe that thing can hold me. I believe that's the strongest platform in all the world. And then I won't get on it. Or I get on this thing and I keep one foot over here because I don't really believe that it can support my full weight. Dear friends, this is what so many people do. They profess all the love, all the delight, all the faith in God, and they never place their weight. They never place their trust in him. Or they stand back there and they say, well, but what kind of wood is it made out of? Who made it? What gauge are the nails? Let me see 10 other people stand on it. Who's the fattest dude that ever stood on that thing? They demand all the answers before they move. Dear friends, and this is where my analogy falls apart because I can stand right there and I can see this thing. I can see this platform. And yet for so many, we're looking to the God who is invisible, the God who is spirit, and we're trusting in promises that we have not yet seen. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Believing in the things not seen, many promises that you won't realize in this lifetime. Abraham, Moses, Noah, all believing in the promises of God. Think about it. You're a bunch of people that woke up on a Sunday morning. You come and sit in this place with the assurance that when you die and you face the judge of the universe, he isn't going to cast you straight in the pits of hell. Based on what? Based on the promise of his word. You're trusting. You're eternity. You're trusting that the fires of hell will not consume you based on the promises of an invisible God. Dear friends, this is faith in God. 
It begins in your head. It takes hold of your heart, and next thing you know, you're completely consumed. So this is what he's saying to these men. Have faith in God. Because he didn't find that in Israel. He found a bunch of religious exercise. If he'd have grabbed these men there at the Passover in Jerusalem, there would not have been a one of them. They would have sooner died than denounced their faith in God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That was their chant. That was their plea. That was their cry. And yet they showed by their worship. They showed by their sacrifice. They showed by their prayers. They showed by the way they treated others. They showed by the rejection of Jesus Christ, his son, that they did not have faith in God. So he stands before these men and he says, lest you wither up and die, lest you be cast into the fire in the end, you better have faith in God. And for the one that would have faith in God, you will bear fruit. Remember, that was the question. How did this tree wither up at once? How did you do this thing that caused the tree to wither up at once? And he says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Now, truly I say to you, it's a statement of promise. This is an assurance I say to you, absolutely, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, whoever, this isn't a universal whoever, this is whoever has faith in God. Whoever has faith in God and says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That tree is nothing. That tree is nothing. The withering of a tree is nothing for the God of the universe. If you have faith in God and you do not doubt You believe with everything within you, no question, no doubts whatsoever, that this God in which you have faith, you say to him, may this mountain be picked up and thrown in the sea. You believe this without doubt, this thing will happen. Have faith in God. Now you will realize that Jesus never picked up a mountain and threw it into a sea. You will realize that there was never a time when his disciples did that either. So Clearly Jesus is talking about much more than just mountains. Clearly, Jesus wasn't saying that his disciples were going to go around and making sure the landscape was nice and flat so nobody, they were tired of walking over Mount, the Mount of Olives and so they were going to throw it in the sea so nobody had to walk over it ever again. That was not it. This, again, was a picture. Much like a camel going through the eye of a needle. He's talking about something that's impossible. With man, it is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. He's, again, paying for them a picture. Now, we don't know what mountain he was talking about. Some people believe that he was talking about the Temple Mount. I believe probably he was just talking about the Mount of Olives. That's the one they were standing on. And people tell us that if you stand upon the, the Mount of Olives on a clear day, we didn't have a clear day when we were there, so we couldn't see it, but they tell us that if you stand upon the Mount of Olives on just the right day, you can see all the way to the Dead Sea. So I have to imagine he's telling them, if you have faith in God and you come to him and you ask and you do not doubt, even this mountain can be picked up and thrown into that sea. This is what faith in God looks like. He's preparing to send these men out. He's already sent them out in great power with his authority to do many mighty works. He'll talk about this at the supper, John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. These men were gonna do mighty works, much more mighty, much more significant, much more important than picking up a mountain and throwing it in the sea. Dear friends, if you are more amazed by the thought of a man picking up a mountain and throwing it into a sea than you are the God of the universe supernaturally raising a man to life and giving him a heart that trusts in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, then you are deceived. There's nothing more marvelous in all the earth. There's nothing more impossible in all the earth than dead men coming to life and loving the God who they hate trusting in the Jesus that they despise. These men were going to be used, and yes, to do many supernatural works, healing men, doing many of the same works that Jesus did in greater number because they went out. 
12 of them, they would go out in his name with his authority, saying, have faith in God. Do not doubt in your heart that you will have this thing that you have requested. So he's speaking to these men. He's not just talking to them about the acts that they will do. He's not just talking to them about faith. He's talking to them about prayer. That's why he immediately mentions them in verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. He's basically talking about the same thing here. Talking about going to God in prayer. Believe that you have received it. Do not doubt and it will be yours. Jesus is talking to them about prayer and he's gonna talk to them often about prayer over these final days. And this is really going to be critical because before too long, he's gonna go to the Father and they won't see him any longer. And we can't fully relate to what this was like because we have not been with Jesus physically as these men have. But they left everything to follow after him and he had been there everything. He had met their every last need. If they were hungry, if they were scared, if they had doubts, if their neighbor had a need, they could just come and grab Jesus Christ by the hand and say, Jesus, would you do this thing for us? And yet before too long, he wouldn't see them any longer. They would be forced to go to him the way that we go to him in prayer. And he told them, it is to your advantage that I go to the Father. It's to your advantage that I go away, that no longer am I stuck in one place at one time in this physical body, but that I can be in all. That I can be with you all, that everywhere you are, there I will be. And you can still come to me with your requests. You come to me in prayer now, trusting that apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm sending you out to do impossible things. I'm sending you out to do incredible things. I'm sending you out to do things that you cannot do in and of yourself. And so you must rely on me. You must learn to pray to me. You must learn to come in faith to God. And these men had a lot to learn. John MacArthur wonders if maybe their prayer life didn't get really, really weak over this three-year period because they had the Son of God walking with them along the way. And this is why they couldn't stay awake for even one hour on that last night before his crucifixion when he told them, would you just stay awake with me and pray for a while? I could probably sympathize with them in that, I would imagine. So he's telling them, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send you out to do the impossible and no longer do you come to this temple to meet with God. I am the temple. And yet I'm not going to be here long. I'm going to the Father and I'm going to send my spirit and then you will become the temple the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and that there, wherever you are, you can meet with God, and then you, as you come together as living stones, you will form the temple, and God will be there too, and wherever you are, you can pray to God. Wherever you are, you can lift up your request to God in my name. You make these requests without doubt, and they will be done for you. Come to the Father asking in my name, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, I know how uncomfortable this makes most of us, Y'all aren't squirming as bad as the first hour. The first hour was getting really uncomfortable because I wasn't quick enough to start backpedaling and tell you, no, there's no real power in this verse because that's what preachers do. They're so afraid of the name it and claim it movement. They're so afraid of scripture being taken out of context. They come to a verse like this, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. And they immediately say, whoa, 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 he didn't mean that. Just let it sit for a minute. This isn't the only time he said something like this. John 14, 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 16, 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. John 15, seven, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
I didn't get this out of your best life now. I got it out of the Bible. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And before I start trying to tell you what I believe Jesus has said here, and certainly before I start trying to tell you what I believe he wasn't saying here, sit under the weight of this for a moment. The God of the universe says that if you come to him, he will act. That he not only allows you to enter into his presence and make requests of him, but that he hears and that he responds. Be amazed, dear friends. We spend a whole lot of time in this church talking about the sovereignty of God with good, good reason. But dear friends, you must understand that the God of the universe who has predestined every single thing that will take place, there is not a molecule, not a subatomic atom in the entire universe that does not move in accordance with God's will and according with his plan, with his providential purpose for all creation. He is moving all things. Not one little dust mite gets out of line with regards to God's will and his sovereignty over all creation. And yet at the same time, as he has ordained every single thing that will happen, he has ordained that they will happen through the prayers of his saints. Do you understand what this means? That God responds to the prayers of broken and sinful and frail and stupid men and women that come to him in the right way. That he ordained every last thing that will happen, he has ordained that it's going to happen through the prayers of his people. The means and the ends, both in the hands of God. Do you understand this? Do you understand what a fool you would be to not go to this God in prayer? Listen to the words, James 4, 2. You have not because you ask not. Now, I understand how this verse has been abused. I understand how men twist this for selfish gain. But you've got to understand what he's saying. He's saying there's things that won't happen in the universe if you don't pray for them. <laughs> do you understand this? There are things that do happen in the universe that would not have happened if you wouldn't have prayed for it. And yet, never at one single moment is God beholden or trapped, or desperate for anything that we do. He is in control and sovereign over everything. At the same time, he said, I'm going to bring these things to pass while you pray. I can't explain it, Catherine. I got nothing. There is no explanation, by the way, this side of heaven, other than to have faith in God, because he said them both. He said them both. Dear friends, your prayers matter more than you could ever know. Your, friends, your prayers matter more than you could ever know. So many people are afraid of the sovereignty of God because they believe it's going to drive men not to share the gospel and not to pray. Dear friends, it's the opposite. He said, I'm going to bring these things to pass, and I'm going to cause you to pray to bring them to pass. I'm going to put a man on your heart today. A lost man. And you're going to pray, dear God, save this man today. And in response to your prayer, I'm going to save a man that was going to hell just moments before. <laughs> I hope you're sitting there because you're wrecked and not because I've lost you. There's nothing more marvelous in all creation than this. And so... Is this a blank check then? He just signed the check and handed it to us and said, ask whatever. Does it matter what we ask for? Does it matter how we ask for it? So those of you who are here on, on Wednesday nights, and this is a reminder, I'd encourage you to come on Wednesday night. They get my best stuff on Wednesday nights. And so we sat on Wednesday night and we read through some passages of scripture where 
God makes very clear in his word. If you just do a survey of what the Bible has to say on prayer, God makes it very clear that there's, there's a certain way that you come to God, and if you do not come to him in this way, your prayers will very much be hampered. We read from Psalm 66, 18 that says that man cannot come to God while cherishing his iniquity and expect to be heard. All throughout the prophets, God is telling his people, because you love, because you delight, because you cherish evil, I have turned my face from you and I will not hear your cry. We read in James 4 where he tells us that if we ask wrongly, if we ask so that we can spend things on our own selfish gain, if we ask so that we can, we can enjoy the pleasures of the flesh in this lifetime, that God will not give us the thing that we have asked for. 1 Peter 3, you ready for this, husbands? 1 Peter 3 says that if you do not honor your wives, that your prayers will be hindered. And then, of course, in this text, verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Again, we're still talking about prayer here. Now, you'll notice if you read out of the ESV or some of the more current translations that there is no verse 26 in your Bible or that verse 26 is in uh, parentheses or is in brackets, excuse me. And we've talked about this in the past. We don't have time to really break it down today, but that simply means that the most early and most trustworthy manuscripts do not contain this verse. But how many times have I told you you don't need to be worried about that? Because what you're gonna find is that what some scribe had written in is verse 26 in Mark 11 actually came from the words of Jesus back in Matthew. They're still the words of Christ. And the words that they wrote were from uh, Matthew 6, 15. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. He's talking about the same thing here. If you do not forgive others, my father who is in heaven will not forgive you. He will not hear your prayers. Now, of course, he's not talking about judicial forgiveness here. He's not talking about forgiveness until salvation. That's already been settled. At the cross of Jesus Christ, he paid for the full sins of those that are his. And at the moment of your conversion, as you came to repentance and faith, your slate was wiped clean. There was no more sin to be dealt with whatsoever. And yet, as we continue to walk through this earth, as we continue to step in sin, as a heart of unforgiveness continues to seep in, it will hinder our fellowship. It will hinder our communion. It will cause separation between us and God. We will still be his sons. We will still be his daughters. We are still headed to heaven. We will not be thrown into the pits of hell if we were to die in that moment. And yet there's a constant need for forgiveness and coming to him, of confessing our sins, of seeking to forgive those that have wronged us. This is a whole lot like the foot washing at the Last Supper where Jesus comes to Peter and he says, you don't need another bath. You've already been made clean. But you need me to wash your feet because you continue to walk through a dusty world. You continue to struggle in your sin. But what we show when we have this heart of unforgiveness, what we show when we think that we can come to God unabated while holding on to unforgiveness with, with regards to one of our brothers or one of our sisters, what we show is that we ourselves are like the unforgiving debtor, forgiving all that God has forgiven us in Christ and then believing that we can somehow withhold that forgiveness as if somehow, Andrew, your offense against me is greater than my offense against the living God and therefore I have a right to withhold from you that which God has freely given to me in Christ. And you cannot come to me like this. You cannot come to me on any terms that you wish. You will come to me in the name of my son, Jesus Christ, because it was only through his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his place there as your intercessor. It is only because of that that you may come to me. It's only because of that that I do not destroy you in this day, but it's only because of my son, Jesus Christ, that I would entertain your prayers and answer them. You must come with his word hidden, his word abiding within your heart. You abide in Christ and his word must abide in you. That will inform your prayers. You must come to me having confessed and repented of all known sin, this isn't sinless perfection, then no one could ever come to God in prayer. But you cannot hold on to, you cannot cherish, you cannot delight your sin. We had those sins that continue to creep in and they're like our little precious. We wanna hold on to them. God, I know your word says, but this is mine. I know your word says, but my circumstances make this okay. 
I know your word says, but nobody else can understand, and so I hold on to this. That you can't come to me like this and expect that I'm going to answer your prayers. We cannot come to him with selfish motives, with a desire to spend on ourselves. We can't come to us while living at odds with our brothers and sisters, while not treating those within our household with honor and respect and dignity. We cannot come to him while holding on to unforgiveness towards others. Dear friends, you will come to God in prayer the way that he calls you to come to him or you will not come at all. He will not hear you. Okay, cool. So, I come without unforgiveness. I come without living at odds. I treat my wife well. I confess my sin. I don't hold on to it. I come in the name of Jesus Christ. I come with his word abiding in me and then I can ask for anything that I wish and it will happen. Not exactly. But I'm not playing word games here. I'm not gonna do the preacher mush mouth, mealy mouth thing while I talk around this. Here's what you must know. If you truly come to God in the way that he says you must come to him, if you come to him abiding in Christ, if you come to him with the word of Christ abiding in you, if you come to him without a heart of unforgiveness, if you come to him looking out for your brothers and sisters, if you come to him cherishing and honoring those that he's surrounded you with, if you come to him confessing your sin and fleeing from him, if you come to him running away from your selfishness, what you'll find very quickly is that your prayers are completely transformed. You'll find that all of a sudden all you care about in all the universe is the glory of God and his will to come. This is what we prayed earlier, wasn't it? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father God, I want your name to be glorified more than anything else in all the earth. You can't come to God's word. You can't abide in Christ. You can't let loose of your sin and not delight in his word, his name above everything else in all the earth. God, there are still places where your name is not hallowed. There are still places where your name is not cherished. Father God, come and hallow your name. Be glorified now. That's my prayer before I come out and worship every single week. I fall on my knees before God in my study. I say, God, if there be a heart in this place in which your name is not hallowed, there is a heart in this place in which you are not glorified, glorify yourself now. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, just as the holy angels go when you say go, do what you tell them to do. They serve you. May your will be done on earth in that very same way because your will is the only will that matters. Not because you're the biggest. Not because you're the baddest. Not because you're the toughest. He's good, not bad. Baddest. Biggest. Toughest. Strongest. But because your way is the only way that works. Your will is the only good will. Because, Father God, if I was the puppet master pulling all the strings, this place would be unlivable. I wouldn't even like living here. So, Father God, I submit to your will and I seek your glory. You'll find all of a sudden your prayers are completely transformed. There's no room for selfishness anymore. There's no room for anything else. Isn't this the way that Jesus prayed? Father, not my will but yours be done. 1 John 5.14 to me is a parallel to this text that we read this morning. John's first letter, 5.14. This is the confidence we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that, we have, that what we have requested, we have received. Talking about confidence in coming to God. It's the same thing as not having doubt in coming to God. How can you have confidence? How can you come to God without doubt whatsoever that the thing you've requested you will receive? There's only one way. Again, this isn't preacher tricks. I'm not playing games with language here. What is the one singular way that you can come to God without doubt and be guaranteed that that prayer will be requested? You have to know it's his will. There's no other way, right? This is the way it works in my house. My little girls, they know there's requests that they can make of me and they are guaranteed to be answered. My little girls come to me and say, Daddy, I want a hug. Done. 
Daddy, I want you to read the Bible with me and tell me more about God. Sold. Daddy, I'm struggling with sin and I want you to help me. I want you to help me flee from this sin and put up some boundaries. Done deal. I will move heaven and earth and whatever was within my power to bring these things to pass. And I am an evil father. And I'm limited in my abilities. And dear friends, you must know that there are uh, prayers that your father will always answer. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever beholds the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, and repents of his sin, they will be saved. He will not leave you there. He will sanctify you. Whoever calls out to God, God, sanctify me. Make me look more like your son, Jesus Christ. That prayer will be answered. Whoever prays to God, God, would you meet me in this place? He says, I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. You pray that prayer, it will be answered every single time. Dear friends, there are so many prayers in Scripture that you can be guaranteed will happen. And the more his word abides in you, and the more you abide in him, and the more you flee from selfishness, the more confidence you will have in your prayers because the more you will pray in his will. Those are the prayers that will be answered. That's the way you come to him without doubt. That's the way you come to him and ask for things much bigger than throwing mountains into oceans. This is what he's talking about here. So that you come to him in this way, having examined yourself according to his word, that you then come to him in great confidence that he hears you. You come to him seeking to pray in his will. You come to him seeking to glorify him. And then if he doesn't give you the thing that you requested, you know that it wasn't for your greatest good and his greatest glory. Isn't that what Romans 8 says? He'll work all things for the good of those that love him that have been called according to his purpose. He'll go on to talk about it in Matthew 7, about how if we as evil fathers, and by the way, that's a slap at all of us. He didn't qualify it. He didn't say some of you that are evil fathers. He says if you, being evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your son, how much more your father in heaven to he that asks. You're an evil father, and if your son asks you for a fish, you don't give him a snake. Guess what? You can't go to God and ask for a snake and have him give you a snake either. There's a lot of times we've gone to God and we've asked him for snakes. We didn't know it because we're dumb. We didn't know it because we have limited information. We didn't know it because we're clouded by sin. We didn't know it because we don't have full wisdom as he has. And there's many times we come to God and we say, God, would you just give me a snake? He says, no, a snake will destroy you. And then some stupid well-meaning pastor goes, no, 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 you just don't believe enough. So now I'm left without a snake and shamed. Well, God, I really believe that you'll give me this snake. I'm still not giving it to you. It's going to destroy you. How many times have I gone to God and I've asked for something? Maybe it wasn't as evil as a snake. Maybe it wasn't as outwardly destructive as a snake, but it was not his good for my life. Dear friends, he says, I will not give you that. I will give you what is best for you. So when you don't have something, I assume, God, it must not be my, your best for me. It must not be to your ultimate glory. It must not be the thing that you want me to have so that I can carry out your will. Another prayer that's guaranteed to be answered. God will give you absolutely everything you need to carry out your purpose in this life. Your purpose is his, crea uh, is his creation. It's his representative, his royal ambassador. He will give you absolutely everything that you need to walk through this life to the very last breath to carry out the purpose for which he has called you. It's guaranteed straight from God's word. Dear friends, as we prepare to come to this table, you need to know that he said he will meet you here. If you come with a heart of faith, if you have faith in God, faith through his son, Christ Jesus, and his atoning work, you come to this table in a way like that, having confessed your sin, 
Have we let go of any selfishness, of any unforgiveness? You come to this place, he has promised he will meet you here, that he will strengthen your faith, that you'll be nourished as you eat his flesh and as you drink his blood. You'll be nourished and you'll be strengthened for the life to come as you go and you live out his purpose for your life in this dark world. His promise that he will meet you here. That's a prayer you can pray. His promise that he will not turn you away because you are not good enough. You are not smart enough. And gosh darn it, people don't like you. He said, in Christ Jesus, I will meet you here because of what he has done. Because if you're standing before me now as those that have been found in him, Dear friends, if that doesn't get you excited to come to this table, I don't know what will. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for the promise that we can come to you and call you Father because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can know that you are a good father who gives us only good things because of your word. We thank you, Father, that you do not give us the evil things, the stupid things, the empty things that we ask you for. We thank you above all for the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, Father, as we come to this table to remember that, to commemorate that, as we come to this table to announce to the world that he is coming back, as we come to this table to be nourished in him, to be strengthened in our faith. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to cast aside all doubt, that you would help us to cast aside all sin, that you would help us to come with great confidence to your table and to meet with you there. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.